Sporty. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, I'm Lisa Francesca Nand and welcome to the Big Travel Podcast. It was winning a Radio 1 competition age 15 to fly to LA that first piqued Satnam Sanghera's taste for travel and indeed journalism. His latest book, Empire Land, How Modern Britain is Shaped by Its Imperial Past, analyses how the British Empire, genocidal as it often was, still shapes who we are. As well as the empire, racism, Enoch Powell, Cambridge, 80s popular culture, the history of Brits abroad and Boris Johnson needing therapy, we chart Satnam's own journey from his Sikh community in Wolverhampton to journalist for The Times and more. Satnam Sanghera is on the Big Travel Podcast. Why don't, why don't we start with uh, you telling me a little bit about the book? Yes, it's my attempt to uh, reframe how we talk about British Empire. I think we think about British Empire in this country with a strange combination of selective amnesia and nostalgia. And the amnesia is reflected in the fact that even though British Empire is the biggest thing we ever did, we conquered a quarter of the world. We primarily see ourselves as the country that won World War II, a time when we defeated the evil German racists. But what that narrative does, it, it glosses over the fact that for a long time, British Empire was actually an exercise in you know, genocidal white supremacy, especially in the 19th century. And then the, the nostalgia kicks in with a kind of popular idea that you can somehow survey 500 years of history and balance the massacres against the railways and so on and come to a conclusion that overall empire was good, which is quite a strange thing to say, really. I mean, it's 500 years of history. It's not like a a book you might review on Amazon. You can't give you a rating out of five, but it's a very persistent idea in Britain. And I'm arguing in my book that actually it's much more useful to talk about the modern legacies of empire because these are things we live with you know, and uh, these are things we actually, we can weigh up. And overall, my argument is that we are quite dysfunctional when it comes to empire. There's all sorts of legacies we haven't faced up to, and we kind of need therapy as a country. And and that's a a really interesting point. And I think it's a very timely book as well, because we've had the whole Black Lives Matter movement. We've had people uh, toppling statues of slave, uh, prominent slave traders that we've kind of almost glossed over it, haven't it? Haven't we? And I think in a way, almost like when you go to Germany and, and they sort of, they, they try and forget really that the, what the Nazis did, obviously that was a very short period of time to compared to our 500 years of empire, but we've glossed over the nasty bits, haven't we? To a certain extent. Yeah. My book's only accidentally timely, to be honest. Uh, <laughs> I started writing it two or three years ago when I'd made a documentary about a famous empire massacre. And it was only towards the end of my book that all the statue thing 
started happening. And it's been amazing that all the things I was worried about in my head are now on the national news, on the news at 10 at sometimes. But I still think the conversation, as you say, is quite superficial. I mean, statues are just statues. I don't actually think they matter. Much more important is our multiculturalism, the reason you and I are here fundamentally, I guess, in your case, I actually don't know your background, is because a bunch of Brits invaded another part of the world. You know, I think our racism can be explained by empire, our dysfunctional politics, this obsession with being world-beating and in, in conquering coronavirus, in our museums, and actually positively in our internationalism. And we travel more than almost any other nation on earth. And I think that goes back to empire too. So I think that the statue thing has been exciting in terms of the conversations it has sparked, but I still feel it's quite a superficial conversation. And also it's, um, it, it, I think it's generating some, some negative um, views to the, to the movement, which is a shame really, because, you know, what people in Black Lives Matter and the whole sort of trying to look differently at our past that some of us are, are, are certainly doing. It's actually, the, the, the statue toppling thing is taking away of that because it gets middle England, it gets your, your, your daily mail readers, it gets them angry about people trashing, why should we, you know, this beautiful statue, why should we take it down? So actually, um, it, I think it, it doesn't help things in a way. Yeah, that's a very good point. I, the thing, thing that's happened is that this, the subject of empire has been weaponized by the right wing. And so, you know, in the week we, it was revealed we had the worst death rate from coronavirus in the world. We had Robert Jenrick, the minister, writing a column on how we needed legislation to protect statues. And what's that about? It's they've discovered that actually, if you sow division around a subject like empire, it actually plays really well. Because there's a popular view that if you're proud of Britain, you have to be proud of British empire. It's historically literate in that you can't be proud of 500 years of really complicated history, but it plays really well in focus groups. So quite depressingly, you have all these ministers and Tories playing this game. Exactly. It's 500 years. It's an awful long time. And of course we did good in many ways, but there was a lot of, there was a lot of bad shit, wasn't there? That the quite British a lot of massacres, occasional yeah. genocide, and the arguably the creation of modern racism. Absolutely. And you, you talk about, um, you, you referenced me, so I'm guessing that you know that I've got a, a, an Asian background, but it was mixed. And I want to move on a little bit to, to your own background. But um, actually, do you know what, before I, I do that, I, I will say that I'm from a uh, an indentured labour background. And that's something that we haven't apologised for at all uh, as, as British people. The British people haven't apologised. We've apologised quite a lot for, for the black slave trade and the African slave trade. But um, in, in terms of indentured labour, the British moved, what is it, about three million people from India to various countries around the world. In my case, it was the Fiji Islands and um, ripped apart families and traditions and and lied and told people that they were my family. Um, my, my grandparents, my father's grandparents on both sides came from India to Fiji. They were told it would take three days and they'd be able to go back home whenever they wanted to. It took three months on the boat, another three months of quarantine, and they were never, ever able to go home again. So that's a that's another thing that, you know, I, I personally want that brought up. I don't know if that's something you touch upon in the book. Yeah, I talk about indentured labour in the book in relation to racial stereotypes, because it's really interesting how the British changed their stereotypes of what races were good and bad at, according to what suited them. So when indentured labourers from the East replaced slaves, you know, they were initially quite positive about people from India. And then 
they actually thought, oh God, actually not, they're not very good. They're not as good as the, as the blacks who we could just keep as slaves. And then there was a bunch of Chinese indentured laborers who they favored. And this is what the British empire did. It came up with notions of how certain ethnic groups were good and bad. And the Sikhs were probably more than any other group stereotyped in this way in that the British decided because we took their side in the mutiny of 1857, that the Sikhs were a martial race. And they actually wrote handbooks saying we're a martial race because we've got a certain kind of nose, our eyes are just the right amount of space and so on. This really weird science they came up with. And um, that idea that we're a martial race persists today. I mean, I think Sikhs see themselves as a martial race, partly because we sort of were from our origins, but mainly because the British decided we were. Yes, which is, uh, it, you know, it has had an off, uh, a long-lasting legacy, hasn't it? And then you, you come on to notions of shadism and the shape of people's faces and lips and how dark you are, and it, it all gets very complicated. And, of course, um, in, in India, there's the whole um, uh, caste system, which is, is incredibly complicated as well. And actually, so your parents must have, um, they came to the UK in, in 1968, and um, they, they must have had a, a very a difficult time, I guess, an interesting time. But that, that was coming to Wolverhampton in the Enoch Powell era. I think it was bang. It wasn't that the year that he gave his uh, very famous or infamous, should we say, speech that they arrived here. Absolutely. Yes. And people forget that Rivers of Blood speech was inspired by Enoch Powell's fear of what the Sikh community was doing to Wolverhampton. So he was talking about people like my parents and using them as a illustration of why Britain was going to go to the dogs. And now Sikhs are seen as a very successful minority community. I mean, if you read the Wikipedia entry, it says Sikhs have, you know, have a very good record when it comes to integration. And, but I think we need to not forget on how they were viewed. And his views were, were essentially imperial. I mean, Enoch Powell wanted to be Viceroy of India. Essentially, why he struggled with multiculturalism in Britain was that it was an inversion of the racial hierarchy of empire, where white people tell brown people what to do. But in multiculturalism, every race was equal. And that was at the heart of his objection. I would say that's the, at the heart of the endless problems we claim to have with multiculturalism in this country. The, the Viceroy thing is interesting from a personal point of view, because I make a podcast um, with India Hicks and her mum, Lady Pamela Hicks, who is the daughter of, of Lord Mountbatten, who was, of course, the last Viceroy of India. And um, they she's wonderful. I sit down in their house and she's 91 now. Obviously, I haven't done it this year or for the last few months, but I go around to her house and she tells me that the tales of actually being, because she went to India with her father and she lived there and she became very close to, to Gandhi and... Um, um, you know, her, there's a lot of con controversy, obviously, in, involved in, in it. But um, it, it's really fascinating to hear her horse's mouth stories of, of being there, you know, throughout partition and her father's experience there. Yeah. And that's the thing people say, oh, you know, empire was such a long time ago. It wasn't really, you know, some of these textbooks with these massive offensive racial generalizations were being printed and talked in the 50s. You know, one of them I found out was in print till 1983. And it was saying that black people are lazy. You know, and I think we all grew up with these kind of notions being, you know, thrown back at us. Um, and the connection feels quite alive. 
So what was it like growing up in the 1980s in Wolverhampton? You and I are the same age and have had a very different experience, actually, because I was growing up in the 80s in, on the Wirral, um, where my dad ended up. But he ended up marrying a white woman, my mum. And that was very controversial. Um, and uh, uh, my grandparents or my granddad and, and other family members didn't go to the wedding. They couldn't find a place to live. You know, if they went along to try and rent a room, they saw my mum, they'd be like, yeah, great. When she came back with my dad, it, it was gone. So they certainly experienced a lot of racism. But because my dad left behind the, the Asian side of him, he was one of those immigrants. People do it in all different ways, don't they? But he, he was one of those. He arrived in, in the early 60s in Liverpool. And it was you know an incredible time to be there with music and culture. And he was a good looking guy. And he met my mum, who was good looking. And they went to see the Beatles. You know, they were doing all the, the swinging 60s stuff. Um, so I grew up in a, a mixed race environment but there was no we had no Indian culture whatsoever which is a shame really I, you know something that later on I was uh, going to regret but um, actually at the time I was quite glad I know that sounds awful because I wanted to integrate I wanted to be like the little blonde girls I was at school with so your parents had a completely different experience your parents had an arranged marriage and they lived in a, in a, a Sikh community in Wolverhampton so growing up for you in the 80s you, you had these two cultures how was it sort of balancing that yeah, it sounds like mine was more of a ghetto than yours in that <laughs> yes. everyone um, in the 80s anyway, everyone, you know, everyone my parents dealt with could speak Punjabi and was Punjabi. Most of my classmates were brown, black or Indian. Um, the, we had a couple of white kids in the class and they were my minority. This was Enoch Powell's nightmare. Um, but because everyone was brown, there actually wasn't a huge amount of racism. I mean, we'd have graffiti, NF graffiti on our walls. One of my first memories is of hiding in a Sikh temple because a bunch of far right yobs were attacking houses. But part, and, and we weren't allowed out when Wolverhampton Wanderers were playing because they had a reputation for being racist. And actually, I've found stories in the 70s where Wolves fans would wear KKK hoods to matches. Incredible history. And now it's one of the most diverse fan bases in the world, racially. So, anyway, so it was, it was very much a brown upbringing. I spoke Punjabi to my parents. But then I got a scholarship to a, a nice school and my life entirely changed. I, I was watching some uh, a video that you're talking with your actually with your primary school headmaster. And do you know what? It almost had me in tears watching it. It just I, I think maybe because we're going through a bit of emotional time at the moment, you know, 2020 and 21. And we're all sort of nostalgic, not just for um, the days of our youth like that, but the days of you know, eight, 10, whatever it is, 11 months ago now, uh, you know, when we had freedom and, and you were walking around and talking to your headmaster. But I don't know why it almost had me in tears listening to your story. So you got you got sent from your from your cosy primary school where a lot of people were brown and there was no racism to a uh, to a, a grammar school, which obviously education uh, Lee, was a was a great move. But, um, you know, how, how was that for you? Yeah, the teacher you're talking about is called Keith Ball. And actually he he passed away a few weeks after, after that interview. So I'm so glad we recorded it. Um, he basically had been to the grammar school when it was a state grammar school and basically got me into the school. You know, he thought I was up to it. So I passed the 11 plus. It was a private school by the time I went there. And the fees, one term's fees was more than my parents earned in the entire year. But I got something called an assisted place. And it was just a very successful academic school. So... I really struggled initially. I mean, it's a quite white school, but slowly I gained my confidence and 
it was amazing. It changed my life. I mean, I guess I went from being a kid who barely spoke in class to being head boy. You know, I went from being someone who wasn't particularly good academically compared to the prep school kids around me to being really good and ended up in Cambridge. And yeah, education is everything. I mean, it changed my life, but also it distanced me from, I guess, my family because I was the only one amongst my 54 cousins who had that experience. So I stuck out. And you cut your hair, didn't you? You cut your top knot off in your, your book, your, uh, The Boy with the Top Knot. Um, I think you talk about that. But uh, yeah, that must, that's quite a statement, isn't it, when you're 14 and a Sikh child cutting off your hair? Yeah, yeah. And actually, one of the things I've, I face up to in my new book is that as wonderful as my education was, it was a form of colonization. I mean, I discovered that in the 19th century, when British Empire defeated an Indian kingdom, the first thing they did was send all the princes to British schools, because that was a way of con controlling them. And they became so British, they barely recognized their Indian heritage. And I realized a, a version of that happened to me in that I was so keen to get away from my difficult background where my dad had schizophrenia and my sister did too, that I kind of deleted my heritage. And so I think my new book's an attempt to reconnect with where I came from. I, I can relate to that. My dad deleted his heritage and I don't think for any sort of deep and meaningful reasons. And maybe it was to sort of fit in, but his, in his words, it was like, well, it left there, but it was, it was here now. He's quite sort of pragmatic about it. Um, but certainly, you know, having had no, no heritage of that side uh, culturally or anything growing up myself, I, I feel like I missed out. But I think at the time, you know, when you're a, a young teen and everything, you don't want to go off and do, you know, what your friends aren't doing. You want to do all the, the modern stuff and the, the 80s, you know, the music and the food and was were the fun times. Tell us about the sort of, um, were, the, were the good times where you like sneaking out and, um, and having fun when you got to grammar school? Yeah, you know, I had an amazing childhood. It was so full of adventure. Um, and actually, I mean, because I had so many of my cousins living on the same street as me. I mean, I always had 10 cousins to play with at any one time. And I was the youngest, so I basically got used as a toy. Um, it was a very happy childhood, actually. And the key thing is I've realized, even though we were very poor and I was working in a factory for 90 hours a week at one stage as, a, as an illegal child slave labor, <laughs> um, we were adored, you know, and that's, that's the way to be truly rich. I mean, my, my parents absolutely loved us all. I think each one of our, my siblings feel like they were the special one, which is quite an amazing thing to do as a parent. And um, yeah, so it was a very warm warm thing. And the thing is, when you're poor, you actually need other people more. And that makes you closer. I mean, people, when you look at, like, remember that program Benefit Street, I remember people saying, oh my God, they've got nothing, but they're so close. And that's the thing. When you've got nothing, you, you're in and out of each other's houses because you need to borrow things, you need to borrow money, you need to, you need each other's support. And that's what it was like, you know, it felt like a very warm community. Um, and it was quite hard to leave. When you you said when you were when you're adored that makes you incredibly rich and that is so true and that is something that I feel that you know we should take with us at the moment uh, when when things are a little bit difficult and me personally I'm trying to homeschool two children on my own and um, actually you know the, the most important thing is that they loved and you've got that Absolutely, around you yes and you, I feel you can smell a mile off when someone hasn't been loved in their childhood it comes out in in all sorts of dysfunctional ways and often, quite often they end up in politics.
<laughs> yes, I love it. Just think that's Boris Johnson. He wasn't loved enough uh, oh, as a God. child. Yeah. That man needs, needs decades of therapy. I can't even begin with him. He does, doesn't he? <laughs> um, it's a complete sidetrack, but I'm thinking about his heritage now. And I saw that Who Do You Think You Are with him. It's incredibly um, connected heritage to all sorts of kings and queens all across Europe. And um, But uh, yeah, you know, probably. And he, he married a half sea woman, I think, or sea woman. I'm not entirely sure, Marina. Um, but yeah, he's in my book too, in, in the sense that he's an incredibly imperial character. You know, he spends his spare time writing imperially nostalgic books about Churchill. The things he said about empire are crazy. I mean, talking about Barack Obama resents Britain because of his half Kenyan heritage, and he therefore dislikes the British empire. Talking about watermelon smiles, reading out, you know, a colonial poem in Burma. He's an incredibly imperial guy. I don't think he realizes it. And this obsession with being world-beating and global person. I, I think it comes so naturally to him. He doesn't appreciate what an imperial person he is. But I think he, he and Jacob Rees-Mogg, who also writes very nostalgic books about empire in terms of the Victorians, are at the heart of our problems with our history. Absolutely. And uh, it seems almost for, for personal uh, gain in terms of ego. Um, but you must have been surrounded by those people when you went to Cambridge. Yeah, yeah, it, I was. It was quite weird. I didn't really understand Cambridge in that. One of the things, I, I guess, when I was growing up, we were poor, but we pretended we were rich. We're not rich. We pretended we weren't so poor, I guess. But I got to Cambridge and there's all these rich people who were pretending to be poor. It was quite <laughs> fashionable then. I guess Oasis were popular. It was fashionable to be working class. But I think if you're an immigrant or a child immigrant, you want to get the hell out of that. I don't feel sentimental about being working class. I know what it means. It means being poor. It means not being having enough money to keep your electricity on. It means 90 hours weeks in factories. And so I became middle class as quickly as I could. But yeah, I found Cambridge socially confusing. I can, I can imagine we'd all find Cambridge socially confusing. Uh, what, who, who was your, did you, did you buddy up with people? Did they take you home to their, you know, country piles in the holidays? Or <laughs> what was it like? No, I totally failed to actually, I mean, I regret it now. I should have been more sociable, but basically I became very good friends with three people who were on my course and at college and felt exactly the same way about Cambridge. So we all ended up, doing a lot of extracurricular activities because the, the social stuff was so uninteresting. So um, my friend John Oliver became a comedian and now he's big in America. My friend Lachlan Gowdy uh, became an artist, did a lot of art, and now he presents programs on the BBC and so on. And I spent a lot of my time doing journalism, um, So which meant it, made, it was easier to get a job at the end of it. Which paid off. It's a sort of immigrant dream. Okay, you're not a doctor, but um, it, it's paid off in terms of um, you are, you know, part of the establishment, like working for newspapers like The Times and publishing books and, you know, doing all these great literary things. You, you've become uh, almost, I'm not going to say you're like Boris Johnson, but you, you've oh, become God. one of them, haven't you? you know, obviously, no, never. Literally, no. you haven't, but I really you're, you're like an establishment. No, I think... The way I do my journalism anyway is, is anti-networking in the sense that I meet very influential, important people, but it's my job to ask them rude questions. And I very rarely become friends with the people I interview. They kind of resent you because I really feel it's my duty to be honest to the reader. And I think it's quite right that when I'm sent to interview someone important, I ask the difficult questions. 
you know. What's the uh, what's the rudest question you've ever asked someone, and who oh, is it God. to? I don't know about rudeness, but you know, my strategy is to not say much. I just think people struggle to handle the silence, and they start blabbing. Not everyone, but it's quite a good strategy, I think, for interviews. I'm now not going to say anything for five minutes and see how you feel. <laughs> well, I, I mean, I, I know exactly what you mean. And, and I like to do that um, on the podcast is that if I'm interviewing someone and we're talking about something emotional, instead of going, oh, that's a shame. I just sort of let them, you know, let the silence sort of flow. I like to think I'm reasonably skilled at it. You're going to talk to me now, aren't you? <laughs> oh, you're doing it to me. I knew you would. <laughs> Um, oh, no, you really are doing it to me. I'm See, thinking. It drives you mad, doesn't it? Yeah, it, it drives does. You yeah, mad. yeah, it drives you mad. Yeah, I was just about to tell you about my childhood, but there were no problems. A bit like yours, it was. Uh, it was full of love. No, I wasn't. I was just filling the science. Um, so uh, yeah, so we haven't really spoken about travel, but I think that this this is a, you know is so important and, and and so connected to travel. And I know you've got a travel about uh, sorry a chapter about travel. Tell us a little about about the uh, the connection with empire and travel. Actually, I'm glad you asked me that because I've been talking about the book and people want to talk about the very controversial things like how is our racism explained by empire, you know, our dysfunctional politics and so on. But there actually, there's a whole chapter which is a fairly positive legacy of empire in that we travel almost more than any other country in the world. And I think that goes back directly to empire. I mean, in the early 17th century, Britain had a population of under 7 million people. And 350 million, sorry, 350 years later, we had 140 million descendants overseas. Uh, and now we have the largest number of emigrants overseas. Um, we're the fourth most enthusiastic tourists. But in the book, I go into how not only the numbers are a legacy of empire, but the way we travel is very similar to the way people travel in empire in that I don't want to be stereotypical about the British, but we do like a drink. I mean, drunken British tourists are a thing. And the, the kind of the British imperialists were famously drunken. I mean, you had the creation of the gin and tonic, essentially to fight off malaria. People drank beer instead of water because it was less likely to kill you. And so there's a huge imperial tradition of getting drunk. There's also a massive imperial tradition of not eating the local food. I mean, you look at what people were eating in India and they ate as much English stuff as possible. And again, you can go to Rome and you'll literally find British tourists not doing as the Romans do and eating, you know, full English breakfast in the middle of Rome. Um, I think people left Britain for the similar reasons too, for adventure, for sex. We have this imperial tradition of dressing quite badly when we're abroad. I mean, there's <laughs> famous pictures of Enoch Powell, you know, in, in a three-piece woolen suit in India, dressing exactly as he would do in London. I think we have a certain tradition of being aloof, you know, and not speaking the language and just shouting English at people and expecting them to understand. But I think certain other traditions have gone in reverse, like we obviously spread Christianity across the world, but now it's places in Africa that are much more Christian and they almost do reverse missionary on us, you know? And actually the language is, is a bit more complicated than I've implied in the, in the years of empire, the British were quite, quite good at learning languages. I mean, Enoch Powell famously spoke Urdu, but now that's gone into total reverse and we're one of the poorest learners of language in the world. A lot has gone into reverse, but it's very interesting that you pull up those parallels between British tourists that go out and get drunk and don't eat their own 
let them eat their own food, don't eat the local food and don't learn the language. I love that the fact that you give that, you give that a big tradition, <laughs> you know, it's actually, you've, you've sort of elevated it from Brits abroad to actually, no, this is what we've always done and we're going to carry on doing it for centuries. Yes. And the other thing is being obsessed with British education in that lots of expats go abroad, British expats, but they almost always want their kids to have a British education. And that was absolutely true in empire, except they often had to send their children back to, the, to Britain and then they'd go back to the colonies. But yeah, I think there's a lot of um, common ground when you read about how people live their lives in imperial, in the, in the British empire, it's a lot of common ground with now. And I guess also it depends how much money you had, because if you had a lot of money, you'd be doing the grand tour, wouldn't you? And I, I, love, I love the idea of a grand tour, but it was for the sons of the wealthy families that would head off around Europe and study art and culture and music and language and have a great old time. That sounds, and, and in fact, that's sort of happening today, isn't it? Well, not right today, but in, in, in the people who can afford it before they go to university, they do a gap year. And uh, the people who can't go on to a couple of, uh, for a couple of weeks in Falaraki and then go back to their jobs, don't they? Yeah, money is an interesting point, actually, because going to empire was actually very lucrative, you know, and, and it's, still, it's still the case that expats get paid much more than people who work in Britain. So I think that's another parallel. But of course, when people traveled in the you know, 18th and 19th century, there was a real risk of death and disease. I mean, the numbers of people who died in India, often they wouldn't live for more than a year or two. Um, so there's a certain amount of desperation that led people to go there. But you've got to have an incredibly adventurous spirit, I think, to end up in, in India in, uh, a long time ago. But I even actually, even, I even find India quite hard now, actually, um, when I go, even though I've only been on holiday, I've never travelled India. I've been a few times and been on holiday. I find it actually quite hard work. Is, is travel something that you've done a lot of? Is it important to you? Um, you know what? I've gone through so many phases. Um, when I was in my 20s, I was at the Financial Times and they have a massive culture of being a foreign correspondent. So I, I spent a year, more than a year, I think, in America, in Washington, D.C. And there was quite a lot of pressure to become a foreign correspondent. I think they wanted me to go to L.A. and become a permanent foreign correspondent. But I actually, when in my 20s, I hated traveling because it's part of work. Um, I was very homesick. I had a girlfriend in London. And my, I had a very, my best friend was very sick and actually died. And so I just wanted to be home. And so I had a ma massive backlash against travel in my twenties. I used to resent it, but now in my thirties and forties, I've got back into it. And uh, especially now, obviously, because of lockdown, there's nothing I want to do more than travel. And then one of the no most annoying things is that I was going to travel to New Zealand and Tasmania and Singapore for this book. Instead, I, I traveled to my study. Yeah. And uh, they wouldn't even let you, it just seems bizarre that they wouldn't even let you in New Zealand right now, let alone there's no flights going, very few flights going. It just seems incredible what we've become. And, and almost we've, um, we, we've become what other countries usually put up with, haven't we? Which is interesting. It's finally happened to us. Yeah, I've realised that actually, even though I'm, I wasn't keen on travel, it's absolutely necessary because it makes you appreciate your home more. The best point of any trip for me is always when we fly over Heathrow on the way home. And I'm always, always excited to be back in London. And I miss that feeling. I miss going away to come back home. Yes, I think absolutely. Coming back home is a, is a, is a big part of it. And often when people ask me what my favourite country is in the world, I'll often say, you know, here. 
um, just because there is something great about going back home. Um, do you think, talking of going back home, you've made your life in London and you've, you've been, were you the first person in your family to go to university? Yeah. Yeah. So you're, you've, um, you know, you've, you've transcended the classes, I guess, as it were, crass as that is, you know, I think many of us who have been the first in our family to go to university, especially from immigrant families. Um, would, you, would you ever go back and live in Wolverhampton? Well, I go back a lot. Um, normally once every two or three weeks. And I've written two books set in Wolverhampton. But for me, it's a bit like the travel in that I think I know Wolverhampton better because I've moved out. And then the people there don't notice what's changed, whereas I notice everything. Um, I do love Wolverhampton. And I could definitely imagine living, you know, there's some lovely countryside outside, but I'm also a Londoner and I love, I love the diversity and excitement of London. And if you're a journalist, you know, you're, you're interested in, um, you know, things happening and more happens in London than in Wolverhampton. It's a global city. So I, I always say I live between two cities. You often get authors saying they divide their time between London, Paris and Berlin. And I would say I divide my time between London and Wolverhampton. Slightly less glamorous, I realise, but it makes me who I am. Absolutely. Well, I'm going to ask you my last question now. My last question is always about music, because I think that music and travel often go very much hand in hand. And I'm going to ask you to choose one song that reminds you of a memorable time and place of travel. And what is that song and what is the memory? Oh, God, this is, you haven't warned me about this. I'm, I'm no. going to say off the top of my head. <laughs> yeah, that's the best thing. <clears throat> when the first time, when I was 15, I won a competition. It's a long story, but I won a competition uh, with Michael Jackson's Heal the World Foundation to go and see him perform at the Super Bowl. So having barely left Wolverhampton, I ended up in LA. And I remember being 15 and being driven in a convertible car through LA and Ordinary World by Duran Duran came on. And whenever I hear that, it reminds me of that excitement of like being on the other side of the world in a completely different place, in a, a very glamorous place. So yeah, I'll say that. That, that gives me shivers. I can just imagine what happened, but I, I need to know more actually. So what was this competition? Oh God, it was a Radio 1 competition and you had to write an essay on how to heal the world. Yeah. And my brother was a massive Michael Jackson fan. I wasn't. He was too old to enter it. He told me, he suggested I do it. And I wrote what I claim was a joke entry and I ended up winning. But that was probably the way I started into journalism because when I came back, my local paper, uh, you know, asked me to write for them. And I started writing quite regularly from the age of 16. So th what was that trip like going to LA? Who did you fly with? Jackie Brambles from Radio One. <laughs> Did you? That's so and funny. Producer, yeah. I think my brother as well. Yeah, oh, amazing. And he was a massive yeah. Michael Jackson fan. So it was just you two boys and Jackie. Yeah. It wasn't anyone from your family. Just the, the brothers. Me and my brother, yeah. yeah. That's and incredible. Was, what was, was LA surreal. like to go to at that time? It's odd. We saw Phil Collins. But yeah, I mean, there's Michael Jackson's famous performance at the Super Bowl. There's a few kids around him and I'm one of those kids. Wow. Yeah. So you met him? Sort of, Yeah. I mean, yeah, it was quite controlled. But yeah, I mean, yeah. I just remember his skin looked amazing because there were so many stories in the papers about how his face was falling apart. So um, I remember looking very closely at his face, but obviously it was caked in makeup and he looked like a superhuman. 
What was it? I'm thinking, was that was that bad tour at that time? Was it a bad Dangerous. tour? Dangerous. Dangerous. Oh, my God, that must have been so exciting. And were you there for quite a while? Yeah, well, the Super Bowl goes on forever. Yeah. And uh, the <laughs> thing is, I, I have no interest in American football. I remember being offered $600 for my ticket outside, and I was sorely tempted, frankly, because that was a lot of money. But, um, yeah, I wish if I, if I went today, I'd actually understand the game. That's brilliant. I love that story. That's a, a great um, a great answer to my music question. And thank you so much for coming on the Big Travel Podcast. No, thanks for having me on, Lisa. Thank you. Satnam, thank you so much for that fascinating conversation. That's the best part of this job, meeting so many interesting people and hearing about their lives and work. And thank you very much for listening. We'll be back with more very soon. Very soon.